Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Gene Panel, our genetics podcast. My name is Ali Reza, and here with me is Julian. Hey guys. So we're both currently studying molecular genetics in university, and through this podcast, we wanted to have a platform to discuss a topic that some might think is too complicated to understand, or maybe they think it doesn't affect them, but actually has a huge relevance in everyday life, or at least it will in the near future. So from breaking news stories like designer babies, to why you'd prefer Chipotle over McDonald's on a Saturday night. Or why someone might call you a picky eater. Also, it's the science of what makes you, you. I mean, that's pretty interesting, right? So Gene Panel is a way for us to break down these ideas and spread the word of genetics. So being antisocial, we were sitting by a co-check while the experts of the field of genetics were giving talks at what's known as the 50th anniversary of genetics at the University of Toronto. But we decided that we're the experts. And naturally, what do you do when you're an expert? You start a genetics podcast. Right? Yeah, we don't need PhDs no, for that. You, nope, you don't. Yeah, so like we said, we wanted to become more engaged in the field and teach others through an enjoyable platform and cover topics such as gene editing and the genetics of cancer. And it's better to know these things than not to know them, right? Uh, for example, back in the day when vaccines were first used, people didn't know what they were either. And they were skeptical and quite frankly scared, right? Because it's a big pointy needle. Uh, it yeah. scared me if I didn't know what it was. They're scary. Right, but now they're important, right? They're They've been used to eradicate smallpox, for example, an important innovation to control disease. So in this first episode, we want to take the time to talk about, well, what is a gene, given its dynamic history context, and why should we even care? So one thing with genetics is that you really can't take it away from the life sciences. It plays a role in almost every field. So for instance, when you think psychology, you probably wouldn't think genetics, but what you may not know is that you're genetically predisposed to certain behaviors or certain disorders. Well, maybe you're not studying life science or you're not a grade A researcher. There's this thing called genetic counseling, which is much like receiving guidance from, well, a guidance counselor at school, except you're in a hospital instead of a school and you're probably much older. But essentially, you're receiving advice on genetics, for example, whether you should have children or not based upon previous family history on diseases and other types of disorders. Um, Also, uh, genetics is becoming an increasingly prevalent topic in not only science, but also media, such as news books like movies like jurassic park right um and it's also becoming uh, integrated into our daily lives for example with gene editing i mean it's a looming controversial topic that needs to be addressed by not just the government and the scientists but also the public right so for example when i'm asked what i study and i just say genetics um but what i've generally found is that people will ask me if i study genetic engineering or bring me some anecdote about genetic engineering so for instance i was at my dentist the other day and he was cleaning my teeth well before he started cleaning my teeth i couldn't talk to him if he was cleaning my teeth yeah yeah it would be yeah but anyways so what he started to talk about was uh this this potato so people were genetically modifying potatoes to have snake poison or snake venom and so you could feed someone this potato and you know potentially kill them right it's it's a good way to go but uh not really but okay yes yeah. but yeah but i'm just trying to say that it's good to see people recognizing the implications that genetic engineering has and its increasing prevalence within our society so the dynamic history of the gene actually started with sheep it did start with sheep yeah so uh, in the early day, early 1800s, people were uh, mating breeds, so breeding sheep, sorry, um, and they were looking for the best traits in their offspring. Right, so they'd pair the two best parents uh, based off their wool quality. For instance, yeah. Right, and then, you know, they breed them and you should get an offspring that is similar to the parents. But that wasn't always the case, right? So these people that would breed sheep 
were really, they had a really awesome name. They were known as the Sheep Reader Society in Moravia. So imagine being a society of sheep readers. That's pretty cool. And so they would constantly be coming together, you know, as academics, really, to determine why certain sheep were getting these good traits, right? And some weren't. Yeah, because they were looking at the idea of, is it based off the parental traits or is it based off of the environment? Right, so there was this whole nurture versus nature debate. As we know it now. So it was either one or the other, uh, but we now know that it's actually... A combination. A combination of both, right, right. Um, There was even uh, university professors researching this, uh, trying to get the best wool for the sheep. Uh, One of these professors went by the name of... or His name was Carl (laughs) Nestler. Still is, I think. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think you can change it now. Right, Carl Nestler. Um, And one of his students was... um, Gregor Mendel. I don't know if you guys know him. Yep. Right. Gregor Mendel. Right. So Gregor Mendel basically laid the groundwork for how inheritance worked and allowed other scientists to expand upon this and really research how we're inheriting certain traits from our parents. But unfortunately, when Mendel first did, ex- did his experiments, he wasn't really, you know, accepted. And that's just because Mendel was really beyond his times in his understanding of inheritance. Um, and so it wasn't until the 1900s. So uh, to give you perspective, Mendel worked in, you know, the mid 1800s, but it wasn't until the early 1900s where three other scientists independently cited, you know, Mendel's work. So they did their experiments, came with the same, uh, developed the same results. And so at this point, right, the basis for understanding the nature of heredity was established. Um, and at this point in time, you know, the definition of a gene is just some hereditary unit. So now we enter the post-classical genetics period where these laws of inheritance are finally ga- uh, gaining tractability and the they're gaining uh, ground as a valid theory. Yeah, and it was really trying to physicalize what a gene is as opposed to being some abstract concept. Right. Um, people were looking to pinpoint what is a gene physically. Um, and so this actually started off with two individual people, Bovary and Sutton, uh, in 1902, where they actually showed that chromosomes influence heredity and they proposed this molecular mechanism for in, for inheritance. So this was really the first instance where Mendel's hereditary, you know, this abstract unit was physicalized. And then fast forward seven years later, this is where you actually had the first term gene, right? right? So this guy by the name of Wilhelm Johansson was the first person to coin the term gene along with other terms like genotype and phenotype. So now finally... Genetics has a name. It's, you know, it's a gene. And now this allows for better communication of, you know, to try to communicate results on experiments and try to further the understanding of what it is. And it's stuck by, right? We're still using the same terminology. Right. Um, And then you have the works of T.H. Morgan. So T.H. Morgan, along with his uh, two undergrads, right, Alfred Sturdivant and um, Calvin Bridges, really looked to um, pinpoint genes, again, on chromosomes. So uh, T.H. Morgan, who actually won the Nobel Prize by establishing that genes are on chromosomes, and then with the work of his students, like we said, who were undergrads. So So they also showed that, you know, undergrads can make a difference. So get on that, undergrads. Well, we're undergrads, too. (laughs) Yeah, we need to get on that. Yeah. So sure, they made huge strides in understanding genetics, but... Did they have their own podcast show? I don't think so. So we've technically one-upped Sturdivant we won. and Calvin we won. Bridges. Yeah, we won, Calvin Bridges. I hope if you're hearing this, we beat you. Anyways, back to the history of the gene. The next step was to really understand the nature of a gene. So it was the most prevalent debate at the time was asking, is a gene a DNA or a protein? And the first uh, definitive evidence of this actually came from a Canadian scientist, so 
Canadian pride guys, um, came from Avery, who established that DNA is the genetic material. And this was in turn confirmed by two other scientists, um, Hershey and Chase, in 1952. And so ultimately, they confirmed Avery's data, finding that DNA is the genetic material and protein is not. So then, now that we know that genes are made from nucleic acids, we want to further understand the structure of these nucleic acids, or in this case, DNA. So this is where Francis Crick and James Watson come in. Who or, actually, some notable, a notable scientist that doesn't really get enough credit is right. actually Rosalind Franklin, who uh, used x-ray crystallography in order to understand the, the structure, structure of DNA. Of DNA. Now, given the implications of the structure of DNA, Crick actually goes on to give a talk on protein synthesis. And this is where he actually proposes the infamous central dogma, which states that DNA encodes for RNA, which in turn encodes for proteins. Now, at this point, the role of RNA as the intermediate between DNA and protein was merely speculative because they knew that RNA existed within the cytoplasm and they knew that proteins remained the cytoplasm. So they ultimately made this connection. And then this missing link was found in 1960 when Crick, along with Brenner, Jacob, and Minot, discovered mRNA. So now the central dogma is DNA to mRNA to protein. And then in 1961, Marshall Nuremberg made the connection between DNA and protein when he cracked the genetic code uh, by discovering that certain sequences of DNA encode for specific amino acids that lead to polypeptides and proteins. Now fast forward to the 21st century and we're actually still using the central dogma. And this is highlighted by Gerald Fink, who's a professor at MIT. And he recently gave a talk about what a gene is. And he actually talks about the usefulness of the protein-oriented definition of a gene, which is the central dogma. So one idea with the central dogma is that, well, we know that genomes are very large. And if we, for instance, sequenced a genome, and then if we gave it to a human, it would be very exhausting to ask him to go through the entire genome to find, a ge to find all the genes. So we can actually use computers to find genes. So how do we do this? Well, to find a gene, a computer needs a definition. So based on the central dogma, a gene is something that encodes for a protein. Or rather, it's some DNA sequence, so a sequence of nucleotides, that encodes a start codon. It has some open reading frame, which is the region of the gene that encodes for the protein and then a stop codon to stop transcription. So if you feed this definition to a computer, then it can find all the genes for you. Right. And this uh, protein-oriented definition of a gene has also been quite useful, uh, for example, in pharmaceuticals and industry. So for example, if you know the sequence of a gene that encodes a specific protein, then you can take the gene and you can clone it um, into some organism, such as yeast or bacteria, and you can mass produce the protein. Uh, for example, you can take um, the gene for human insulin, put that into the yeast, and mass produce human insulin, which obviously has huge implications for treating diabetes. Right, and so another interesting point that Gerald Frank Gerald Fink brings up is the idea of impossible foods. So this is the idea of making vegan foods that emulate the taste of meat but have no meat in them. And uh, a similar concept to that exists in Canada. So for instance, if you know Beyond Meat, such as that, uh, such as the meat that's sold at Tim Hortons or at A&W, it's a similar concept. So what gives um, a hamburger, regular hamburger, its taste is the hemoglobin. So this is the protein that's found in uh, a cow's blood or our our blood as well, but because we don't eat human meat, so it's found in the cow's blood. So, and it's what gives it gives it the red color. And so, 
this is what gives it its unique taste as compared to a regular veggie burger. But what's been found is that soybeans have this hemoglobin analog, so something that's similar to hemoglobin, but is rather in soybeans, known as leg hemoglobins. And this actually parallels the taste of the hemoglobin in cow's blood. So the creator of Impossible Foods actually cloned the gene for the for leg hemoglobin into yeast, and so he used that to create these meatless burgers that tasted like meat. Um, furthermore, we can also use uh, cloning and this protein-oriented definition of a, of a gene to address green issues. So for instance, biofuel. So 40% of corn grown in the U.S. is actually being used to feed the yeast that's actually being used to make ethanol. So again, uh, climate change is a very prevalent issue, so why not tackle that using the central dogma? So all three of these examples show how genetics can be implemented in a variety of different contexts to address different critical issues, such as disease and pollution, and how having a definition of the gene has been a benefit to both basic fundamental research and translational research entailing human health. What's odd is that only 2% of our genome is protein coding. So what's the other 98%? Is it chunk or what is it? So to address this, scientists use what's known as RNA-seq. Essentially, a technique you use to determine what parts of the genome are being transcribed, that is, what parts of the genome are being uh, made into RNA, and then to compare these RNAs, right, to see which ones encoded proteins and which ones remained as RNA, right? That is, these are known as non-coding RNAs. And what the data actually shows is that most of the genome is transcribed, but again, only 1-2% to results in protein. So these non-coding RNA that was believed to be junk actually wasn't, because over time, there was this golden era of research, whereby scientists were looking into the role of non-coding RNAs in their roles uh, in, in important biological processes, right? So particular gene expression. So to give you a taste of these non-coding RNAs, one such coding RNA is link RNA. Now to give you context, we have to discuss the difference between males and females, right? So males will have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, and then females will have two X chromosomes. So you would think, well, do females just make more genes than males because females have two X chromosomes, whereby males have one X. Yeah, and the Y chromosome in males is actually really small, and the only genes that are there are just genes that encode for male development. Right, and so to solve this dosage problem, this link RNA that I uh, just mentioned, it essentially wraps, it coats the one of the X chromosomes in a female and produces what's known as a bar body. This is essentially an X chromosome whereby no expression occurs from. So you have one X in a female that works, one X in a male that works. And this actually results in cool heterogeneity patterns, right? Or these mosaics. So if you've ever seen a picture of a calico cat, the reason why it's multicolored is that you have differential um, silencing of either the mother's uh, chromosome in some cells and the father's chromosome in other cells, right? right? So some parts of the cat's you know body are expressing the orange pigment, some of the white, some of the black. Right, and that's how you get multicolored calico cats. So now we know that not only proteins, but RNAs have important functions too. So now we just simply include these functional RNAs in helping define what a gene is, right? Well, yes, while that may be the case, it's still very hard to identify RNA coding genes because they lack a ubiquitous structure. In fact, it's already difficult to ask a computer to find protein coding genes, let alone non-coding RNA genes. For example, in the case of finding protein coding genes, you have to tell the computer what a true start codon is. That is, the DNA sequence that encodes for the start of a protein. Usually, it's been found to encode for methionine, 
However, it could also include for another amino acid in some other rare cases. So if you were to tell the computer to look for a star codon that encodes for methionine, you might end up missing some other protein coding genes. Additionally, it's hard to set an arbitrary length of a protein coding gene. If you set the length of a protein coding gene to be too large, then you might actually end up missing a lot of smaller protein coding genes. On the other hand, if you set the length of a protein coding gene to be too small, then you might miss some of the larger ones. In addition, some of the smaller ones might be false positives in the sense that the distance between the start codon and the stop codon might be too small to encode for any functional protein at all. So Ali and I actually went to talk to one of our U of T professors, Dr. Collins, to ask him how he would go by identifying non-coding RNA genes. And what he told us was that, well, there isn't really a set standard way of doing it, but what you would try to do would be to use parameters defined from experiments to find specific RNA gene structures and use those structures as parameters for computational methods to look for your gene of interest. Uh, but even then, there are still a lot of exceptions that add error um, using these computational methods. Uh, so ultimately, you'd have to use bioinformatics in conjunction with your experimental approaches to first define your parameters and then find your gene of interest. So in the future, maybe we'd use learning algorithms or even AI to help identify these protein coding genes or non-coding RNA genes. Now, taking a step backwards towards the MIT professor Gerald Fink, he proposes the following definition of a gene. A gene is a DNA sequence that transcribes an RNA with a function. So now, the definition now revolves around RNA as opposed to being more protein-oriented, which is, of course, on the right track. What's interesting, however, is that there are still a lot of non-coding RNAs that we don't know the roles of. So can we be fooled into thinking it's junk again? Is it actually non-functional? Or does it actually serve a function? So the definition of a gene is dynamic and it's very context dependent. It's based off what is known at the time. It's been redefined over time and rightly so as more research goes into the field of genetics. Now, more complicated and exceptional cases still exist or have yet to be identified and understood. And maybe a case should be made whether or not the definition of a gene should be inclusive enough to encapsulate everything, or if we should maybe try to categorize the definition so that we're not encapsulating everything into one word, including all the exceptions. And that concludes the first episode of the Gene Panel Podcast. And we hope you tune in the next episode where we will talk about one of the most discussed genetic topics, if not the most talked about topic, gene editing. Thanks for listening.